Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Greetings, listeners of the history of Byzantium. Robin does a wonderful job exploring and explaining the past of this Eastern, Orthodox, and complicated empire, which lasted for a thousand years. And I enjoy it and listen to it carefully, because it reminds me of another huge Eastern empire, which also lasted for quite a while, but then... collapsed. I'm Kristaps Andresons, from the Eastern Border podcast. I talk about the life in and the history of the Soviet Union, exploring the other side of the Cold War, using both historical sources and the stories of people who actually lived there. And whether those are people who are enduring the siege of Constantinople in the 8th century, or people in Soviet Kolkhoz who are starving due to communist government, in the end, their story matters. So, if you're interested, check out The Eastern Border on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website, theeasternborder.lv. But for now, enjoy the show. Remember, somewhere, somehow, an Iceman from the KGB is watching you. And happiness is mandatory. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 103, God Loving. As I've sat down to write each episode this century, it's felt like I needed to recap what's gone before. This period hasn't been quite as chaotic as the game of musical chairs which led up to the siege of 717, but today we do meet our seventh emperor in 27 years. And I think it's fair to say that Byzantium has been in crisis since the Battle of Pliska. Today, Michael's son, Theophilus, ascends the throne, and for the first time in two decades, no major internal threat faces our leading man. Rarely do I do this, but I'm going to cover Theophilus's 13 years on the throne by topic rather than chronologically. As I mentioned at the start of the century, this era is marked by two big military disasters. The first, Pliska, saw the icons once again targeted as the source of God's disfavour. The second, the one we're soon to explore, will lead to the restoration of the icons. 
Theophilus becomes emperor in 829. Nine years later, he suffers defeat on the battlefield with the caliphate. And five years after that, he will die unexpectedly of natural causes. Had he lived on, that defeat might not have seemed so significant. But at the time, it did. And the restoration of icons which followed marks out his time on the throne as the end of one era. But Theophilus was a really interesting and very productive Vasilefs, and I don't want the achievements of his reign to be lost in the gloom which followed defeat to the Arabs. So next episode we will cover the Eastern Front. Today we will look at everything else. But far from being a dull part one, Theophilus's domestic politics hint at the future for Byzantium. The era of blaming the icons may be coming to an end, but the time of gold, trade, diplomacy and expansion has begun. Last time, Michael II, Michael of Amorium, died of kidney failure. He left the empire to his son, Theophilus. Theophilus's birth date is still debated, but the consensus suggests it was 813, the year that Leo became emperor and Michael settled down in the capital as commander of the Excubitors. If true, this means that Theophilus grew up in Constantinople and was only 16 when he became emperor. Heraclius's grandsons had all ascended at similar ages and led competently, but the suggestion that he was perhaps a little older is tempting, given how quickly he took to the job. Either way, he'd spent his formative years on the Bosphorus and therefore received a first-rate education. One of his tutors was the learned John the Grammarian, who happened to be the most prominent iconoclast clergyman of the day. So, the father was a rough provincial soldier who was elevated out of political necessity. His offspring was a cultured son of the capital, more in tune with the rhythms of palace life. This is a familiar dynamic in Byzantine history. Justin adopting Justinian, Leo III surviving the siege and leaving Constantine V, an empire ready to be moulded. Young Theophilus stepped out into the light with a firm idea of the kind of emperor he wanted to be and how to make that happen. Like many of the young men we've seen in this role, he was keen to be an active military commander. But he also showed a wider understanding of the ways in which propaganda could be used to create the image of a successful regime. One of the first acts of his reign was to execute the men who'd murdered Leo V. As you'll recall, Michael had been imprisoned for treacherous behaviour. He sent word to his co-conspirators that if they didn't save him, he would tell Leo who they were. So armed men were snuck into the palace, and Emperor Leo was hacked to pieces. Usually, imperial assassins were executed by the new regime. Leaving them alive is a dangerous reminder to everyone how you got the job and how others might do the same. 
Michael obviously felt it would be too ungrateful to continue this tradition, but his son did not suffer from this constraint. Despite the fact that their actions saved his father and paved the way for his elevation, Theophilus gave the order. The assassins were marched out into the Hippodrome at the end of a day's races and executed. As political theatre went, it was a smart move. It was a cleansing act and spoke of his lack of favouritism. And like all good propaganda, it concealed a deeper truth. The men who now lay dead were simply the hired thugs, the ones who'd swung the swords. They were not Michael's real co-conspirators, the men who paid the assassins' wages. As I said at the time, we still don't know who these men were, though one of them, Theoctistus, the eunuch who visited Michael in prison and passed on the messages, was never punished. In fact, he was one of Theophilus's most trusted officials and would go on to serve his son. By this act, Theophilus also hoped to establish a reputation for being just. This seems to have been a concern for many emperors since Leo III, for fledgling dynasties Cultivating a sense that you were the people's friend was essential in maintaining authority. One of the few things I didn't have time to mention about Nicephorus, he of Plisca fame, was that he opened a new law court in the palace where he would hear appeals in person. This flowed from his attempts to weed out corruption and tax evasion, but both Leo and now Theophilus continued this practice, spending their time directly dealing with the complaints of citizens. Theophilus would go the extra mile, literally, to show his concern for his people's well-being. He announced his intention to ride across the city once a week from the palace to the Church of the Virgin at Vlachernae. This regular religious observance would demonstrate his piety, but it was also made clear that he would halt his journey for anyone who wished to bring a complaint before him. This extraordinary access led to several famous stories, like a woman who told the emperor that his brother-in-law was building a mansion that overshadowed her home, denying her access to sunlight, which was forbidden by law. Theophilus reprimanded his relative and pulled down the house. On another occasion, the emperor was riding a horse given to him by the count of the Opsicion. A man in the street flagged him down and told him that it was his horse, stolen from him by the count to win imperial favour. Whether these particular incidents ever happened, we don't know. But what's interesting is that the tales come from later iconophile writers. Theophilus is the last iconoclast, maintaining the policy instigated by Leo and tolerated by his father. So these later writers of hagiography generally badmouth him for his heresy. And yet such was the impact that his weekly rides made that these men chose not to whitewash his evident thirst for justice. There's little need to question the emperor's sincerity either. 
Murdering Leo aside, Michael was known for being a man of straightforward piety. His son had evidently inherited some of his earnest nature. The Vasilevs was also known for dismounting and visiting the capital's markets. Here he would examine the food available and inquire about its price. He was keen to keep an eye on greedy merchants and stop them from gouging the people. Historians suspect that Theophilus's behaviour may have been influenced by stories about the great Abbasid caliph Harun al-Rashid, the man who would later go on to star in the Thousand and One Nights. You'll recall that our century began with Harun leading several expeditions into Anatolia. Harun was like the Trajan of the Abbasid Caliphate. He was their leader at their most prosperous moment. He oversaw the magnificence of Baghdad, whose refinement and atmosphere became legendary. Theophilus grew up in the decade after Harun's death, when stories would reach him about the glories of the Arab capital. Harun was reputed to have walked about the streets of his city, dressed as a beggar, in order to hear the unvarnished opinions of his citizens. Theophilus, on his weekly rides, was attempting something similar, and in other ways he would try to capture the sense of grandeur and awe which Harun had inspired. One way he did this was through building. As you know, significant construction at the capital has rarely taken place since the rise of Islam. What money was available had to be spent on the army. But now Theophilus cracked open the treasury and commissioned big changes to the palace. He built a whole new wing facing the Sea of Marmara and lavished it with marble and mosaics. Terraces received water features Bedchambers were given special touches like gold points on the ceiling to simulate a starry night. There were practical elements too, like new corridors connecting parts of the sprawling complex to rationalise things. But in general, it seems he was attempting to demonstrate the refinement of his court to foreign guests. The most famous example of this campaign were the series of golden automata he had installed in the throne room. These included two great organs of gold, studded with semi-precious stones and crystals, which would blast as visitors were ushered in. Two lions of hammered gold guarded the throne, which itself could be raised by a mechanical device. And beside the chair was a golden plane tree, with golden birds perched on its branches. To further blow his guests' minds, the lions would open their jaws and the birds their beaks, and hidden pipes allowed the sounds of roaring and chirping to suddenly appear. The imperial couple got new golden threaded robes and a new golden display case held the imperial regalia. This startling display of wealth and technical skill certainly made an impression on the emperor's guests, particularly in the mind of Western Europeans, the court at Constantinople will gain the reputation for fabulous wealth. 
You can see a cartoon of this scene at the website. We know that the Romans had built golden organs before, but historians surmise that the inspiration for some of the other machines came again from the court of Baghdad. Theophilus's tutor, John the Grammarian, visited the Abbasid capital to announce Theophilus's accession, and we think that he may have come home with ideas for how to create Byzantine equivalents. Certainly a new palace built in Bithynia was described by contemporaries as being highly influenced by Arab style. In order to make all these constructions possible, Theophilus patronised education. His concern for the prestige of his court seems to have extended to investing in the long-neglected universities of the capital. A legendary story describes how John the Grammarian's brother Leo, a renowned polymath, was offered a state-funded seat in the palace, complete with teaching assistance, to prevent him from going to Baghdad and working there. Leo had such a first-rate mind that he is credited with the successful installation of the famous beacon system, which could warn emperors of a raid from the caliphate. Apparently, two identical water clocks were installed, one in the lighthouse of the imperial palace and the other in the fortress at Lulon, next to the Cilician gates. A list of twelve messages was agreed, and then the Anatolian garrison would light a bonfire on the specific hour which corresponded with the message to be sent. A series of lookouts in mountain forts was set up, and each would in turn light their own fire to send the signal to the next station. Eight fires were all it took to cross Anatolia, so that in theory, Theophilus would know about an Arab raid within one hour. This system was, of course, the inspiration for that stirring scene in Lord of the Rings when the beacons in Gondor are lit to summon help from Rohan. I've put up a map of the actual beacon system and a clip from the film in the usual places. Sadly, we know little about how this system actually worked or how often it was used. Probably Leo did not devise the whole thing, and warning signals had already been used before any special clocks were installed. But apparently a similar system was later used in Greece, which suggests that it was successful. Back in the capital, Theophilus also completed a project which his father had started. Thomas the Slav's siege had made everyone in the capital nervous about the vulnerability of certain sections of the walls. Michael had begun strengthening those around Vlachernai, and now his son raised the level of the sea walls. This was a massive undertaking, but with the fall of Crete and parts of Sicily, it was clear how necessary this was, and no expense was spared. A few other restorations aside, these sea walls would remain as they were until the final fall of the city. Theophilus's inscriptions are still visible, and I've put one of them up on the website as well. Now you might be thinking at this point, where did Theophilus get all this money from? Golden robot lions? Palaces? Walls? Beacon towers? 
and I haven't even got to his military pay rises yet. Historian Warren Treadgold draws up some very speculative budgets of various Byzantine rulers, and he estimates that at his death in 842, Theophilus's treasury could expect to receive around 3 million gold coins per year. This compares to just 2 million under Constantine V about 70 years ago. Some historians have speculated that an old Armenian gold mine was reopened, and this explains the sudden influx of wealth. Others point to increased trade, particularly with the Rus, the new Scandinavian arrivals from the north, who brought goods from both their own land and eventually from the Caliphate across the Black Sea. Roman sources say very little about the Rus at this stage, but we believe that the new theme of Paphlagonia was set up with an eye on these new arrivals. In 839, an embassy arrived to discuss trade with Theophilus. Apparently, the Khazars and Magyars had tightened security in their lands to prevent the Rus from cutting through. The emperor was sympathetic, but there was little he could do. He was, however, concerned that the ambassador might struggle to get home safely, given the hostile powers in charge of the direct route. So he advised him to travel back via Italy, where his own embassy was headed. Once there, though, the Franks immediately recognized this man as a Viking and arrested him. Byzantium would have to wait a little longer to get a thorough introduction. A more likely explanation of the growing wealth of the Romans can be found in our narrative. First, bubonic plague had finally disappeared. The last serious outbreaks were in the mid-8th century. The Byzantines have now enjoyed several generations of growth with no culling. Empty land is being filled with new farms and new opportunities. Then came the Emperor Nicephorus, who pumped money into the economy and, of course, significantly increased the efficiency of government collection. One of the consequences of this was the shriveling away of the payments-in-kind method of taxation, which in some parts of the empire had continued since Heraclius's day. Theophilus made his own contribution to this by minting thousands of new copper coins. Perhaps his visits to the market had convinced him of the necessity of this, or maybe advice had come from the provinces that efficient collection was being hindered by a lack of currency. This opportunity also allowed Theophilus to change the design on the coins, which had remained fairly consistent since Anastasius put them into circulation back in the 5th century. The new folis now proudly boasted Theophilus Augustus you conquer. The growing, wealthier Romans were delivering greater sums of tax to the emperor's coffers, and he was investing most of it into the infrastructure of the empire. The walls and palaces were built by labourers, who then spent their earnings where they were working. And the golden menagerie could always be melted down and turned into coins, if needed. This new prosperity would have been evident earlier if the Romans hadn't botched Plisca and then turned on one another during Thomas's civil war. 
This version of Theophilus, the capable administrator and savvy propagandist, shines through, despite our sources. It's a credit to his efforts, because those same writers cloud his memory with the usual accusations and slander about his iconoclast activities. By some accounts, Theophilus was the most committed of the second iconoclasts, where Leo had simply reacted to the disaster at Plisca, and Michael had merely tolerated the new policy, Theophilus really believed in it. Egged on by his tutor John, the young emperor began torturing those who disagreed with him and gleefully watched them suffer. As we've found throughout this period, though, on closer inspection, the sources don't really bear out this characterization. The emperor was fairly quiet for the first two years of his reign, but after his first tangle with the Arabs, he did crack down on iconophile activity. Two prominent bishops were arrested for having circulated a pamphlet predicting the emperor's death. They were beaten, and one died from his injuries. As the situation on the Eastern Front deteriorated, Theophilus demanded that other recalcitrant bishops share communion with the patriarch or face exile even those living outside the capital. This order saw several monks go on the run or suffer other recriminations. Warren Treadgold links this persecution to defeats at the hands of the Arabs. Theophilus, trying to reassure his army by coming down strongly on those who opposed the theology that brought victory. But other historians disagree. Writing pamphlets predicting disaster for the sitting regime was treason, and refusing to cooperate with the patriarch was seen as seditious behaviour. The emperor's actions are consistent with traditional imperial responses to political dissidents. The most famous example of persecution came in the case of two Palestinian monks, Theophanes and Theodore. They arrived in the empire during Leo's reign, and had already been arrested for opposing his iconoclasm. They seem to have taken on the leadership of the iconophile movement after the death of Theodore of Studion. So, to make an example of them, Theophilos had anti-icon slogans tattooed on their faces, then sent them into exile. Assuming this creative punishment did take place, which it sounds like it did, it seems likely that the emperor's harsh measure was in part motivated by the fact that the two men were foreigners. Bishops from well-connected families were usually incarcerated in large monasteries under comfortable house arrest. But with no local constituency to offend, Theophilus perhaps decided to be cruel to make it known how serious he was about conformity. It seems likely that Theophilus did agree with iconoclast arguments. He used no religious images in his palace mosaics, preferring scenes from nature. He promoted his former tutor John to become patriarch when his predecessor died. He also followed the designs of Leo and Constantine on his coins but it seems unlikely that he ever burnt icons, defaced images, or cruelly tormented any other monks. One of the most prominent iconophiles, Methodius, was imprisoned several times over the years, but he was such a prominent intellectual that just before his death, Theophilus invited him to move into the palace to share his wisdom.
Famously, Theophilus' wife, Theodora, was a supposed icon lover. She and her family were prominent members of the court, and after the emperor's death, would restore the icons. It seems unlikely that Theophilus was so vehement in his attitude not to notice the lack of enthusiasm surrounding him. We'll discuss Theodora's biography more when she takes centre stage, but she was from a well-connected family of Armenian descent, which should come as no surprise, as Leo the Armenian had brought many of his brethren into imperial circles. They'd continued to serve Michael, and of course Theophilus's own mother, Thecla, was also of Armenian descent. Their marriage was a fruitful one, producing five daughters and two sons. Tragically, the first son drowned in a palace cistern while still a toddler. The second was named Michael after his grandfather, but was only two when Theophilus passed away. During his first few years in power, the emperor had no junior colleague or obvious successor. So in 836, he decided to marry his youngest daughter to a handsome and noble soldier from another Armenian family, Alexius Musel. If you're binge listening to the podcast, then that name might ring a bell. We believe that this was the grandson of the Alexius Musel who rebelled briefly against Constantine VI. In order to devote the next episode entirely to Anatolia, we should cover a couple of other foreign policy matters. News from Sicily was largely bad during those 13 years. In 831, the Arabs seized Panormus, modern Palermo, the largest city in western Sicily. This eventually gave them control of the whole west of the island, The imperial fleet attempted to intervene in 835, but was easily beaten by the Arabs, who were being reinforced both from Africa and Spain. In 838, freshly minted Caesar Alexius Musel was sent to Sicily with a few reinforcements to try and turn the tide, but he could do no more than maintain the status quo. By the end of Theophilus' reign, the Arabs had seized Tarentum on the Italian mainland and begun raiding Byzantine and Lombard territory. With his own troops tied down in Anatolia, the emperor opened diplomatic channels with anyone he thought might be able to help. He sent an official request for assistance to the Venetians, which was tantamount to admitting that they were independent of the empire, He offered his daughter's hand in marriage to the son of Lothar, the new Frankish king, if they could reach an agreement. And in a truly radical move, he even sent an embassy to the Umayyad Caliph of Spain to see if he could drive a wedge between them and the African emirate. Sadly, the emperor's early death scuppered these plans. Back in 835, The 20-year peace with the Bulgars expired, and both sides did a little raiding. Theophilus sent the imperial fleet on a somewhat romantic mission. He'd been contacted by the leader of the city of Macedonia, as in the Macedonia which lay to the north of the Danube. This town had been created by Crum, 
from the prisoners he took from Adrianople back in 813. Still longing for home, they waited till the Khan had led his troops down into Thrace and then fled hastily north. The emperor had agreed to send his ships to the coast just outside Bulgar territory, which was now occupied by the Magyars. The ex-Romans had to fight a running battle with hostile natives, but apparently thousands of them made it and would joyously return to their homes in the Macedonian theme. Meanwhile, Theophilus' land forces had managed to occupy the strip of territory which connected that theme with Thessalonica, uh, which was supposed to be left to the local Slavs in the original peace treaty. However, a new ten-year peace was agreed once each side had finished their smash and grab, leaving the Balkans in peace for a little while longer. That brings us to the end of today's episode. As you can see, Theophilus was a very active emperor, and a pretty good one. His extravagances were balanced by sensible spending elsewhere. He promoted his legend, married well, and seemed genuinely concerned with the welfare of his people. By decking out the palace to impress, and then making wide-ranging diplomatic contacts, Theophilus seemed to be preparing Romania for a multipolar future. His admiration for Arab culture certainly marks him out as unusually open-minded. It seems he understood the influence which soft power could have and how it might be used. Next episode, though, we'll see how military defeat, iconoclasm, and his untimely death mar what was turning into a promising reign. With perfect timing, alongside our first encounter with the Rus, we have an introduction from the Eastern Border podcast. Chris Tapps will take you through all things Soviet Union with an eye on how they affect the politics of Eastern Europe today. Check it out at theeasternborder.lv. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.